Acts chapter 16. At the end of this chapter, there is a very, uh, what I thought to be a familiar story. It starts at verse 25, which is in the bottom right quadrant there of page 129. This is where the imprisoned Paul and Silas, they were singing and praying to God when suddenly the whole facility collapsed around them. They were freed from captivity. They had a beautiful moment with, of intervention with their jailer who was led towards salvation and away from suicide. Um, raise your hand if you're familiar with that story. I heard on that before. Oh, good. A lot of people. Good. Very good. Great. It's a holy moment for sure. But I got to tell you, for all the scriptures that have been read on Sunday mornings, for all the sermons I've heard on this text about being freed from prison, I can't think of a single sermon I've heard that explained to me why the saints of God were in jail to begin with. With so many people being familiar with this story, how many have heard a sermon on why these men were in jail to begin with? Great. You are in luck today. <laughs> Let's back up to the same chapter, verse 16, and discover, if 16 is right at the very bottom of the previous column, discover why Paul and Silas were put into jail. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, they're on their way to the temple, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and the rest of us, she would be crying out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation, amongst other things. And she kept doing this for many days, and Paul very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews, and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. And the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, the jailer put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The word of God for the people of God. Yeah, it's hard to give thanks to God for a word such as that. Keep it open right here. We'll be back to it in a minute. Before we dig in, I want to highlight a few things. Firstly, the book of Acts is essentially volume two of Luke's gospel account. 
The Gospel of Luke was all about the stuff that Jesus began, the stuff that Jesus started doing. And the book of Acts, this second volume, is all about that continued work, the work of Jesus Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I say that and I clarify that because the traditional volume, title of this volume is The Acts of the Apostles. And while there are many stories and named apostles uh, that take place throughout this volume, the single unifying character still remains Jesus himself acting directly or through the power of the Spirit. By the time we catch up here to chapter 16, there are a few key things that have already happened and things that I want us to be aware of. There's five of them. Number one, Jesus has ascended into heaven comes back, appears to Silas, uh, Saul on the road, scales, eyes, all that happens, but has ascended. Number two, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people and God's very being has taken up new residence in the heart of God's people. These are the new temples in which the Spirit of God now resides. We'll hear more about that next week as we celebrate Pentecost and the church's birthday. Number three, the proclamations of Peter and the other apostles and this building up of the kingdom of God. Remember, you read through, and a thousand people joined, they were baptized that day, and 2,000 people were added to their number. Literally thousands of people are joining this Jesus movement at one time. And with that many people joining and that many lives being changed, it was a disruption to their communities. It disturbed the established order of how they had set up their life together. From Luke's account, we learn that when Peter and the others went to the temple proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, they got confronted by the, and arrested by the priests, by the captain of the temple guard, and by all the Sadducees. It'd be like if someone came in the door here and Gary and I along with J.R. Security Guard, along with Matt Attlee, and the rest of church council were able to grab them up, arrest them, and hold them in captivity indefinitely. That was normal. Number four, it is because of this disruption, these continued acts and people joining, disturbing the established theological and social norms that eventually led to people getting killed. Stephen was murdered while Saul, later Paul, held everybody's coat as he was stoned to death. They literally dragged Stephen out of the city to kill him. It was a scene unlike any other. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that on that day, the day when Stephen was killed, a persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. But still, God's kingdom was being built up. And fifthly, lastly, this persecution continued. And not just at the hands of religious leaders. In Acts chapter 12, we read that about that time, King Herod, and this is what it says, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. Herod had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword, also had Peter arrested and put in prison. 
Perhaps this was because Peter had been so successful in beginning to convert the Gentiles and several Roman soldiers. So this disruption to their way of life was no longer limited just to a single religious community, but the gospel of Jesus Christ was successfully being spread throughout Judea, Samaria, other parts of the Roman Empire, into northern Africa and into Indian Asia. In the book of Acts, Luke wants us to clearly see that the early Christian church was spreading out around the world, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. They would be announcing in their missionary journeys that Jesus is the risen king of all nations, that membership is not based off of who you are, your ethnic identity. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek or something else. It doesn't matter if you follow all the laws of the Torah or all these Roman customs. All you have to do is simply trust in Jesus and then follow His teachings. And if you do that, you too could be a part of a brand new, miraculous, monotheistic, multi-ethnic community of faith. The ancient world has never seen anything like this. Luke also wants us to see that these missionary journeys where the apostles went out into the world proclaiming all of this stuff, he wants us to see that it led to a clash of cultures between the early Christians and the established Greek and Roman world. And he records multiple clashes in Philippi, Athens, Ephesus. You see, Paul is announcing that Jesus is the revelation of the one true God and the king of the world. And as we heard Bernie proclaim in the psalm readings, the Lord is king. Righteousness and justice. Fire goes before him. The mountains melt like wax. The peoples behold the glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Those who make their boast in worthless idols, all gods bow down before him. They were announcing this. Gods and idols were powerless and futile against the power of Jesus Christ. This message of the apostles is seen as subversive to the Roman way of life. Paul gets accused of being a dangerous social revolutionary. Paul and the other Christians are also constantly being accused of rebellion, even treason against Caesar, the Roman emperor. And the thing is, all the Roman people who accused them of all this, they heard the apostles correctly. Paul was indeed announcing that there is another and better king, Jesus. And they also heard correctly and saw that the Christian way was a direct challenge to Roman lifestyles and many of their own cultural values. A movement that puts men and women, the rich and the poor, the free and the enslaved, all on equal footing under the lordship of Jesus Christ is, as I said, unlike anything the ancient world has ever seen. And it is in this story, 
these few verses of chapter 16 where we see all of that put together. In this story, we get a glimpse of an extremely toxic culture. We see the power that people are allowed to wield over one another, where men own women, and where perhaps mental illness or even true spiritual gifts are exploited for financial gain. We see a culture that values profits over people because it is only when the slave owners lost their ability to exploit this woman for money that they had Paul and Silas dragged through the marketplace before the authorities. These servants of God were attacked. They were stripped and beaten. They were arrested and imprisoned and placed in the innermost cell with their feet fastened to the stocks all because the people of that community saw them as a disturbance to their city, a disruption to their way of life, and as challengers to the status quo. As living temples where the Spirit of God now resides, God acts in and through us, in our flesh. And there are small, miraculous moments Sometimes through absolutely no choice of our own, because remember, Paul was just annoyed. I'm annoyed at you. Get out. Through no choice of our own, the power of God breaks through and the empire is overcome by the love of God. Now, just for clarification, this isn't about good people or bad people. This is about normal people who are joining in the crowds and attacking these are about normal people who owned other people. These are about normal people who saw this as a disruption. It's not about slaves and free. It's not about Jews and Romans. It's about normal people living under a very clear and distinct reality. This clear reality that these people were living under was a reality that valued exploitation, that valued slavery, that valued money. And that reality was and is in direct contrast to the kingdom of God. Exploitation, violence, and oppression. They've got this institutional empire through which they are working. And that institution is hurting people every day. And Paul saw that. And we can see that. That reality, this empirical reality, is doing incredible harm. And God's people, people like Paul and Silas, have to figure out how they're going to relate to that reality. Do they ignore it and enjoy their lives as best as they are able? Do they submit to the empire and offer it loyalty in order to save themselves? Are they dragged through the marketplace and go, oh, we're sorry, we're going to put the spirit back in her? Or do they resist it? Do they disrupt that reality and work towards the building of a new reality, a new kingdom, one that is ruled by love incarnate? My friends, the risen Christ is to be exalted as king of the world. 
And the promise of the Holy Spirit is that Christ's personal presence empowers us to go out into the world and bear witness to the good news about his kingdom until he returns to rule it. But this witness, this message of love, equality, hope, and salvation... This witness and this message, it rubs up against the institutions and the systems of this world. It clashes with the culture of the present age. It disturbs cities. It is disruptive. And much like it was in the days of the early church, the gospel message calls us and compels us to proclaim that love wins, that the moral arc of the universe does indeed bend towards justice, and that our modern systems of oppression, violence, and exploitation are in direct opposition to the kingdom and will of God. As followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that lives in us empowers us to disrupt the empirical norms of poverty, of food insecurity, of unmet medical needs, gentrification, and unaffordable housing. Our lived witness should be one that disrupts the normalized internment of immigrant and refugee children. It should disrupt the now almost daily reports of mass shootings that take the lives of our friends, neighbors, and children. The gospel message should affect our lives in such a way so that we, like Paul, can finally put an end to men claiming authority and power over women's bodies. It should embolden our response to the fact that the richest 1% own more additional income than the bottom 90%. It should make us question our own privileged histories of white supremacy, our lineages of patriarchy, our generations of war, queer phobia, and economic injustice. This is how the Holy Spirit works. This is the gospel on display in the lives of God's people. This is how the kingdom of God is realized in the midst of an empire. We are called to disrupt these evils, to disturb these systems of oppression, and to resist injustice in whatever form it takes, so much so that those very words are part of our baptismal covenant to which every member of this congregation has agreed to uphold. And taking this active stance is not new for followers of John Wesley. I tried to convey this to the children. He set the example for us to combine personal and social piety. Ever since the predecessor churches to the United Methodist Church flourished in the United States, we have been known as the denomination involved with people's lives and our involvement brings with it both political and social struggles 
It has local and international mission implications. And such involvement is an expression of the personal change that we experience in our baptism and conversion. The United Methodist Church, and this is quoted, believes God's love for the world is an active and engaged love, a love seeking justice and liberty. We cannot just be observers. We are a community of faith who care enough about people's lives to risk interpreting God's love, to take a stand, to call each of us into a response no matter how controversial or complex. I told 830 service, I said, we can't be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. And I think I've said this before too. It's not always how you respond, but that you respond. And thank God that there are numerous ways that we can and do respond, that we can be active and engaged, that we can take that risk to respond to God's very presence dwelling inside of us. There are some congregants of First United Methodist Church who respond through intercessory prayer, visitation, and pastoral care. There are others who build and fix homes, some who sew, others who cook, still others who sing, care for children, teach classes, write letters, write checks, answer phones, or even run for public office. That's happening. And all of those things can be disruptive. They are disruptive because it is the empire and the systems of this world that leaves people ill, lonely, and in pain. But the Holy Spirit confronts that with healing, accompaniment, and comfort. They are disruptive because this world causes people to be cold, hungry, and naked, but it is the body of Christ who works to warm them to feed them, and to clothe them. They are disruptive because the powers of this world seek to oppress, enslave, and exploit. But it is the responsibility of all believers to hold the line, perhaps be a little bit annoyed, and say, no more. In the name of Jesus Christ, no more. On one of your inserts on the back of your worship order is the social creed for the United Methodist Church. There is a litany that accompanies this creed in the Book of Discipline, and I'm going to offer that litany up today as a closing prayer. Even though it's designed as a litany, there are just four repeated words that I will pause after and allow you the opportunity to respond together by saying those same four words. And those words are, and so shall we. Let us pray. God in the spirit revealed in Jesus Christ calls us by grace to be renewed in the image of our creator that we may be one 
in divine love for the world. Today is the day God cares for the integrity of creation, wills the healing and wholeness of all life, weeps at the plunder of earth's goodness. And so shall we. Today is the day God embraces all hues of humanity, delights in diversity and difference, favors solidarity, transforming strangers into friends. And so shall we. Today is the day God cries with the masses of starving people, despises growing disparity between rich and poor, demands justice for workers in the marketplace. And so shall we. Today is the day God deplores violence in our homes and streets, rebukes the world's warring madness, humbles the powerful, and lifts up the lowly. And so shall we. Today is the day God calls for nations and peoples to live in peace, celebrates where justice and mercy embrace, exults when the wolf grazes with the lamb. And so shall we. Today is the day God brings good news to the poor, proclaims release to the captives, gives sight to the blind, and sets the oppressed free. And so shall we. And so shall we. Amen. As we come to the table together today, there will be parts of the liturgy where you are asked to confess your sin that you have seen, that you have witnessed, that you have been a part of in silence. I don't want to know it. It's between you and God. And then later on in this liturgy, there is a time of thanksgiving where we give voice and, a, and our acclamations are lifted up in the church of God's goodness and how God loves us. And at that time, the church should not be silent. Those sounds should echo out the doors into the street of God's people giving thanks to God for God's goodness. So please join me here. Come to the Lord's table. All you who love him, come to the Lord's table, confess your sin, come to the Lord's table and be at peace. We have not believed you or trusted in your power. We have stained our souls by our action and inaction. We are broken by disease, bruised by the sins of others, weakened and unable to repair ourselves. We ignore your call to center our lives in you and are so deaf to the hopes and cries of the poor, the sick, 
the needy, and the earth. When we confess our sinful ways, God abundantly pardons. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. By one Spirit, we are all baptized into the one body. Make for peace and build up our common life. Amen. Here we come to the thanksgiving part. There will be a moment when we will all lift up our thanksgivings. Anything you want, children, grandchildren, just prep it. Prep it. The church is going to be loud in a minute. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the rising of the sun to its setting, your name is praised among all peoples. Hear us this morning as we lift our voices in praise and thanksgiving of your wondrous and mighty love. Amen. 